Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I was joined by Dr. Stephen Hussey. He's a chiropractic doctor with a interest and methodology related to cardiovascular disease. He himself suffered from a large STEMI, which is a type of myocardial infarction or heart attack. He's a longstanding diabetic. Today, we dove deep into his background and his open-minded curiosity with which he views the world. We talked about statistics relevant to cardiovascular disease the role of mitochondrial dysfunction, the impact of Ansel Keys in his research, how cholesterol works in the body, as well as statins, causes of myocardial infarctions or heart attacks, how we can proactively navigate cardiovascular health and the impact of fasting. I hope you will enjoy this podcast as much as I did recording it. Welcome, Dr. Hussey. I'm so excited to have you here with us today and talking about your book, which I mentioned off of the video and off of the recording that I was really, really enjoying your book. I think it's incredibly impactful. And my hope is that listeners and also clinicians listening will purchase the book and really spend some time diving into the research that you did such an incredibly thorough job on. Well, thank you. What a great introduction. I'm really glad you enjoyed the book. I'm happy to be here so we can talk about it. Absolutely. Let's start with your background, which, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about your personal history and choices that you were making into your young adulthood. And then the impact of having had a myocardial infarction or a heart attack at such a young age. In fact, I didn't know that about you until we met this past summer at an event in August. And when you shared that with me, I was completely taken aback because you're obviously a very young man, but you've been a long-term diabetic. And how old were you when you were diagnosed? I was nine years old. Yeah. And my brother's actually type one as well, but he wasn't diagnosed until 22, which is very interesting. Yeah. As a kid, I had a lot of inflammatory conditions, a lot of I had like asthma and allergies. And I used to break out in hives all over my body. And, you know, the solution that the doctors came to was, you know, prednisone eventually. That was the only way they could get these inflammatory things under control. I had IBS as well. And eventually all that inflammation I know now eventually became autoimmune type one diabetes. My body attacked the cells that make insulin. So I no longer make insulin. And it did that for my brother, you know, years later when he was 22. So, yeah, I mean, we were, my family and I were kind of, you know, thrust into this world of, of Western medicine to help us manage these conditions and keyword being managed, you know, there wasn't much talk about why this stuff was happening. And it wasn't until college that I started, you know, finding out that the way I lived my life had a direct impact on my ability to manage these conditions and ultimately cure most of them. Aside from the type one diabetes, it is collateral damage that was done. Those cells are gone. And and unless there's some stem cell therapy in the future, they're probably not coming back. So yeah, we were kind of, you know, relying on Western medicine and But once I figured that out, I did a lot of trial and error. And it's been this ever uh, never ending journey for me of figuring out like what kind of environment I can put my body in, whether that's food or stress or whatever that can have an impact on my health. And I found it interesting that no doctor ever told me that, especially about type one, because, you know, I I thought about it and, you know, from the time I was diagnosed to the time I first ever heard the words low carb diet, 
was about 12 years. And I, I feel like that should have been one of the first things I was told as an option for type one, you know, but it wasn't. And so I had to kind of figure that out on my own. And so, yeah, it's been this journey for me of trying all different types of things. I mean, I was vegan for a while. I was, you know, eventually found like paleo and then lower carb and just all these different things I tried, but it's not just diet. It was um, environmental stuff. I used exercise because I was very active as a kid and a young adult and, and still am. So I used that as far as managing type one, but yeah, type one heavily predisposes me to heart disease. And I learned that, you know, looking at all the posters in the endocrinology offices that I went to that said, oh, you know, small vessel disease, your eyes, your kidneys, all this kind of stuff. And so my ears always kind of perked up when I heard anything about cardiology or the heart and coming at it from my perspective, you know, especially before I got any medical training whatsoever, I was open to everything. I wanted all the information and I've always kind of been that I credit my dad for giving me that curiosity. So yeah. And then even as a chiropractor, it's a bit of a different, you know, education. It's more preventative, holistic, even though, you know, all the basic science and everything is the same. It's still like a, a diagnosis based system with chiropractic as well. But again, I had no preconceived notions about what I should think about heart disease. And so I was able to take in all the information. And so trying to prevent this disease, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully, and uh, we ended up here with with me putting a book together and and trying to share the information that people seem to find interesting. No, it definitely is, and and I think because you're such a young man, understanding that you developed diabetes as a child after being treated with prednisone, and we know prednisone in adults, as an example, can chronic prednisone use can predispose people to becoming insulin resistant. But understanding that all these pieces start to go together, did you feel like? any particular nutritional paradigm was most aligned with making you feel good and or allowed your insulin levels and your your blood sugar levels to be more optimized did you how do, how well did you do on a vegan diet just out of curiosity well even before the vegan diet you know i was just told eat whatever you want just give yourself insulin for it i remember getting a book that listed literally every single fast food meal or item that i could eat from all different fast food restaurants and just being told, go and eat whatever you want, just count the carbs and bolus for it. And so that's what I did for a long time. And then, yeah, in, in college, like I said, I started changing diet and mentioning things and, and founding that it, it helped and I could manage things better. And I was like, oh, that was interesting. And I think the biggest thing was just going toward the whole foods diet, you know, less processed grains, less processed sugars, even though those weren't things I was completely eliminating at the time, but that was a big, that's what I noticed in college. And then yeah, I went on a vegan diet and I was on it for probably about two years. And, you know, it, it was helpful because at that point I knew whole foods were better. And so it was helpful in some regard, but then like when I compare it to, you know, a more paleo or lower carb, like I'm doing now, a really low carb now, it, there's no comparison. Like the vegan diet was, I found that I got sick a lot and I found that blood sugars were harder to control for me. You know, I was using more insulin, even though I wasn't really eating you know, foods that spike insulin, like the more processed carbohydrate foods, I was eating more whole carbohydrate foods. I felt like I had to use more insulin, whereas with lower carb, more animal-based eating, it was less insulin and easier to control. But I also had to dose my insulin differently because, you know, the blood sugar spike, even though it's not really a spike, but the elevation would, would happen later. Um, so I had to kind of, which nobody ever told me to account for protein. I had to figure that out on myself when I stopped eating carbohydrate you know, because uh, the carbohydrate always dominated the blood sugar uh, movement. And, um, and so when I started eating 
low carb and just protein, I had to figure that out and dose that differently, which a lot of type ones don't recognize. At least I wasn't told that. So, so yeah, I mean, aside from, you know, getting sick all the time, having harder to control blood sugars. The other thing was that when I was vegan, my, my, I didn't know it at the time, but when I started eating animals again, my brain just ignited. It felt like it was like all of a sudden I could read all these different things and put it all together and formulate ideas. Whereas before I was just like, you know, trying really hard to get it into my brain, you know, that's kind of how I felt, but, uh, but yeah, it's been a lot of different trial and error. That cognitive clarity piece, I think is really important. And obviously I respect the choices that listeners make and people choose to make. And the really great thing is we can change our minds. If we find that something no longer serves us or works well for us, there's absolutely no shame or judgment in, you know, shifting gears. And I, I do believe that animal-based protein is superior on a lot of different levels in terms of looking at metabolic health. Now let's segue into being a very young adult and the stress of the pandemic and, you know, being disconnected from loved ones and not being able to do the things we really took for granted. And it's during this time period that you actually had this event. And so, you know, before we dive into statistics, I think your story is really, really powerful. And I'm hopeful that listeners will really connect to that because I think there's this presumption that people that have MIs or have heart attacks or have a certain age, and you're a really great example of the fact that it can happen in younger adults. Yeah. So this was something that, you know, if people read the book, they'll get the story. And then also I, a couple of weeks ago, I did a, a talk at Roanoke College where I talked about like the updates of what I've discovered since then too. So if people want to check that out. It's on my YouTube, you know, about the heart attack, but yeah. So, you know, obviously it took me by surprise. I had a massive myocardial infarction, a hundred percent blockage of my left anterior descending artery, which is the biggest artery supplying the heart. And you know, it's easy for a lot of people to say, oh, it's your diet. But as I'm laying there in the hospital recovering from this, you know, having, you know, written pretty much completed the book that, you know, people have now read, I'm sitting here thinking my whole purpose in writing this book was that heart disease is not just about diet. And I almost think that it's a much smaller part than some other things we need to be concerned about. Yes, metabolic health is very, very important. And that's the pretty much if your diet is not creating metabolic health and you need a different diet, uh, no matter what diet that is, but diet is, or heart disease is also about stress. It's also about toxin exposure. And when I say stress, there's a very big, that's encompassing a lot of different things. We're talking about stress metabolically. We're talking about stress, toxin exposure. We're talking about stress socially, psychologically, lots of different things. But the more and more I looked into it, especially writing this book, I realized that it was, it, heart disease is, it's so much more than just a lipid panel and a cholesterol medication or something like that. That's extremely narrow-minded. And I don't even think necessarily warranted in a lot of cases, it's way overused. And it, but the problem with it is, is that it allows us that theory and that method of treating heart disease has allowed us to almost ignore everything else that's super important. And so for me, you know, I knew all this stuff, but there was, you know, circumstances where I let things get to me and I was in this chronic stress situation and, you know, predisposed as a type one diabetic, you know, I'm always going to be more prone to oxidative stress, more prone to insulin resistance. And so those things, I think, I mean, one of the big things is that I'll have low endothelial progenitor cells, which are cells that go in and heal the lining of the artery. And so with all that predisposition, and then, you know, in the year leading up to the event, I mean, people need to know that my CAC score was zero six months before I had a heart attack. Because 
these are all theories that I talk about in detail and I quote the research in the book, but I'm not convinced that a, a narrowing of an artery is what causes heart attacks. It's not a good thing to have, but a stenosis of an artery doesn't guarantee or doesn't increase the likelihood that you'll have a heart attack, in my opinion, just based on the evidence, based on the research. Again, it's, it's an indication that there's things happening that shouldn't be happening, like damage to the lining of an artery that the body's trying to repair. But you know, heart attacks can happen without any narrowing whatsoever. And lots of times they do. And sometimes they happen in spots where there's no atherosclerosis whatsoever. And that seems to be what happened with me was that, you know, a large enough clot formed and notice I say clot, not accumulation of cholesterol over time, but a large enough clot formed because of situations I was in because of, you know, being type one diabetic and the stress I was under from not just the pandemic. I mean, it's, it's easy to say, oh yeah, the pandemic was stressful because it was, but it was stressful for everybody. So why did I have a heart attack and other people didn't? And the answer to me is that there was, you know, type one diabetes and other things as well. But it's when we look at the evidence and I talk about this in the talk I gave a few weeks ago, that's on YouTube, it's the prolonged chronic stress that predisposes us, that increases a clotting state. The blood's more likely to form clots when we're in that state. And then that all can be perpetuated and, and then triggered by an acute stress, which is exactly what happened to me. There's, you know, in my life, you know, I was under this chronic stress from being separated from loved ones, but, you know, some personal relationship issues I was having at the time. And then I heard some unfortunate news about a very close family member that I was unable to do anything about. And so I heard that news. And then a day and a half later, I had a cardiac event. And so there's to ignore that correlation and to not look into that is incredibly short-sighted in my opinion. And when I was in the hospital, that's all I heard was, oh, it's your cholesterol, it's your cholesterol, it's your cholesterol. Even though I fit this lean mass hyper-responder type phenotype, you know, where everything else was looked good as far as all the biomarkers and everything, except the cholesterol was a little higher. And they just wanted to say that rather than saying, well, what else happened to this person? you know, or what's been going on in their life for the last 20 years, like type one diabetes. And then in the last year, and then you look at the evidence of, you know, during the pandemic and cardiac events and cardiac hospitalizations are way up since then because of the stress. And so it's hard for people to wrap their head around that. And even people I've told like, oh, it was stress, stress induced. They were like, but how? Because this theory of cholesterol slowly building up and blocking an artery, causing a heart attack is just so ingrained in us. And, but when you really break it down and look at it, it really makes no sense. And it's almost like this. I don't know. There's this example of this guy named John Hunter way back in the day. And he was convinced that heart attacks and heart disease was caused by stress. And ironically, in a heated debate with a colleague, he had a heart attack and died. He was like, you know, really getting really animated, getting really angry. And, and it happened to him. And so it's just really, really, I think, unfortunate that when I was in the hospital, that the answer I got was just, it was this, don't question us. We know what we're doing instead of, you know, what could it have been? This person's really young. looks like they take care of themselves. Like all their markers are good. How can we blame this one marker? That's really not a good understanding of this complex biological ecosystem that is the body. It doesn't make sense that one thing will cause disease, but instead of doing that, there was no open-minded discussion. There was nothing. It was just, this was the answer. Go on your way, do what we say. And so it's almost like, it's like this manifest destiny. Like I have all this information about the heart and then I had a heart attack myself and it's kind of as bad as it was. And as much as I wish it didn't have happened, it's kind of given me this bigger avenue to address the issues that I saw in the hospital, the issues that I saw, the health issues that I had in myself and given me, you know, allowed me to touch more people who've had similar, you know, experiences and help them as well. 
One of the most common concerns I see in perimenopause and menopause is hair loss, hair breakage, hair shedding. And knowing that over 80 million Americans are impacted by this is both reassuring, but it's wonderful to know that there are products available that can help with these symptoms. Divi is good for those with hair shedding or thinning due to stress in perimenopause or menopause. They can be helpful for addressing dry scalp. And have you wanted to take control of your hair health but aren't sure where to start? This is where a Divi can be hugely impactful. I love their scalp serum. And we know that the scalp serum improves the appearance of breakage, nourishes our hair follicles, and removes product and oil buildup. There are some key ingredients, including tea tree oil, which works to reduce and prevent excess oil buildup on the scalp, amino acids that help to strengthen hair, fight frizz, which is my greatest concern, and reduce breakage, and copper tripeptide 1, which is a small protein composed of the three amino acids to facilitate a clean and hydrated scalp, as well as hyaluronic acid, which is nourishing and hydrating to our scalps. As I mentioned, Divi is not just for those experiencing hair loss. I found it to be hugely helpful for scalp health and all of Divi's products, including their shampoos and conditioners, come together to create a full daily solution that helps women nourish their hair and get to the root of scalp health. Do you want to take back control of your hair and scalp health and do it with clean science-backed ingredients? Go to DiviOfficial.com slash Cynthia or enter Cynthia at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's D-I-V-I official.com slash Cynthia for 20% off your first order. As I mentioned, my favorite product is the scalp serum. And now that we're in the deep throes of winter weather, it is so wonderfully nourishing and moisturizing. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armor colostrum. And the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armor's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced. And it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to try 
armra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Well, I think through adversity comes opportunity and the fact that you were completed with this book and then you went on to have a myocardial infarction. And for anyone that's listening, I can tell you that the demands on traditional allopathic providers have just gotten to a point where there's a degree of cognitive dissonance, meaning it's hard sometimes if you've trained hearing, this is the modality that drives cardiovascular disease and vascular disease in general. And then you have someone that has the courage to speak out against the typical narrative and do it in a way that's both very eloquent but also encouraging people to kind of lean into the possibility that what we were taught may not actually be correct. And I know we've got lots of touch points that we're going to hit on as we drive this discussion. So I think as someone that used to treat acute and chronic vascular disease, the amount and the time that clinicians have with patients in the hospital is so constrained that I always welcomed these kinds of discussions, but I know not all my peers felt that way. They wanted to just finish their rounding and get back to the office or get on to the seeing someone in the lab or sending someone to surgery. And so I can imagine that there was a, a degree of friction and a degree of pushback when you were asking questions which are completely reasonable, given your personal circumstances, your personal history and your own experience. And I know that we're going to talk about statins, but this is one drug that it took treating a an acclaimed NIH researcher who's very smart, who explained to me what statins did to the brain and why she refused to take one. And that was the very first time I probably had been practicing for seven or eight years. And I really leaned into that and asked her to share the papers and asked her to share the research so that I could better understand. And it changed the way I practiced. I was still evidence-based, but I was way conservative. You know, do we really have to put this person on a statin? And the standard medical therapy for diabetics when I was practicing was aspirin as an antiplatelet agent and a statin, because we used to say that it would stabilize plaque formation and reduce inflammation. And yet statins are not benign. Aspirin's not even benign. And we sometimes don't question what we're taught. And I'm not suggesting this as a whole, a criticism of my healthcare practitioners, because I think the world of them but I'm just hopeful that future iterations and those of us that have trained, you know, 20 plus years ago, I mean, I started training in 1997 that we do question. I mean, that's how I was trained was to question everything. So again, I applaud you for having those difficult conversations and for starting the narrative. I think it's important for the listeners to have context about how many people are impacted by cardiovascular disease. And so there's some statistics in the book that I'm going to just mention In 2018, 720,000 first-time MIs and 335,000 recurrent MIs. Remember, MIs are myocardial infarcts, which are heart attacks in the United States. By 2035, 130 million people in the U.S. will have had some form of vascular disease. That's staggering. And lastly, and this is based on data from Circulation, which is one of the preeminent cardiology journals, the annual direct and indirect costs of MI and stroke are $329.7 billion a year. So if you're listening and you don't think it's a problem, you need to lean into the fact that it is a problem. And we need to be doing as much proactively to 
ensure we are lessening the likelihood that we are impacted by vascular disease in general. And I'm not just talking about heart attacks, but also carotid artery disease, strokes, peripheral vascular disease. We used to call people that had all the above vascular paths, but anyone that's impacted by these vascular disorders. Yeah, for sure. And, and to me, this suggests, like we were talking a little bit before we started that, you know, those numbers show that our approach is off, right? If the numbers keep going up, and they're predicted to keep going up and it's costing us as much money that the approach that we have is not the correct one, or at least not the whole story. Right. And that was one of my points in writing my book is that I wanted to open up the conversation because clearly we need more or we need better approaches of better treatments and things like that. Better understanding. So my book's called understanding the heart is trying to understand better understanding of what does cause cardiovascular disease so that we can develop better treatments. And so the statistics show that, you know, we're off on the wrong track and we need to get on the right track. And that was the most, I think, disheartening thing about my time in the hospital. And, you know, I'm familiar with Western medicine. I've been using Western medicine, you know, physicians and practitioners for a long time and all, you know, with, I don't know what the word is, but happily doing that, you know, like, you know, going to them and getting their opinion and, and working together with them and things like that. So what the shutdown of conversation in the hospital, when I would ask questions, whether it was they didn't understand it or they didn't have time, like you talk about, that was the most troublesome thing to me because here I am trying to figure out, because at this point I wanted it, I wanted to know what they thought because I just had a heart attack and it, and it completely took me by surprise. And I wanted to know what their thoughts were. I wanted to know why they wanted me on this medication or that medication, because based on what they were trying to do, I could think maybe I could do it a different way. Or maybe I really do need to take that or not. You know, like I wanted that, but I didn't get much of that conversation. I was branded as a non-compliant patient in my chart. And every new physician or new practitioner that came in kind of gave me that treatment as this non-compliant patient and that they didn't have time to deal with because they had other things to do. And that is what it is. And that's just the system that they work in. But the whole point in this book was to open this conversation because it's not happening within Western medicine's walls to open conversation and actually find the truth. It's, it's more about like standard of care. You said like with the type one, it's like be on a statin, be on this, you know, like that's just the standard of care. And if they don't follow that, they're liable. I get that. But one example I did give was, you know, about magnesium. When I asked about magnesium as a blood thinner in the hospital, I was directly told magnesium is not a blood thinner. And I don't know if he meant like magnesium is not an agent that thins the blood or magnesium is not as powerful as a blood thinning drug. I don't know what he meant, but I tried to expand on that and was basically told that, you know, you need to take the blood thinner. And, you know, I get that point of view. And, but later I did find studies that show that magnesium intravenously, magnesium sulfate can be administered, or at least in animals, it has been shown to be just as effective as blood thinners for preventing clots after stents. Now, I didn't expect that physician to do that based on if I showed him that study and said, look, you know, because there's no, you know, approved treatment to do that in, in a hospital setting. However, it makes us step back and say, okay, what's going on within Western medicine, this business that is Western medicine that has prevented a therapy to be, you know, perfected or developed with magnesium sulfate rather than blood thinner that has the risk of bleeding and things like that. So we just have to, we have to step back and recognize that. And you talk about, you know, your, your fellow practitioners and everything and how, how much you love them and how great a job they're doing. And, and that's exactly the way it should be. We should have, you know, love for these people, but I hope that they understand this is the system they work in and, you know, what they need to recognize. And this is the system they work in so that they can make their decisions accordingly uh, when it comes to these types of, of situations down the road. Well, it was just the research that shows that the magnesium 
intravenous magnesium sulfate has been shown to, at least in animals, to be effective at preventing clots forming after a stent placement. I didn't expect, if I showed the practitioners that study right there, I wouldn't expect them to say, oh, okay, yeah, then we'll just do intravenous magnesium sulfate because that's not an approved treatment for that. But what I want people to understand is that this is the kind of world that Western medicine physicians and practitioners are operating in is that they have to kind of abide by the standard of care. If anything goes wrong, they're liable. And so in a way that kind of prevents them from investigating what could be, you know, effective in other ways. And so it's just important for practitioners to understand that that's the system that they work in and not just ignore it and say, I'm going to do my job and this, but also understand that they work in the system that may not be giving them all the facts and question, well, if it's just as effective, then why hasn't a therapy using magnesium sulfate after stent placement been developed? And eventually you get to the end of that and be like, oh, because it's not profitable, probably. That's exactly what I was about to say. You can't patent that and then make money from it, right? I mean, it's interesting in cardiology, we use a lot of magnesium and a lot of my background was working in electrophysiology. So working with the cardiologists that put in pacemakers and defibrillators and dealt with arrhythmias. And so I got very savvy with electrolytes, particularly magnesium. And so to me, there's like the traditional modality is like, if you're in a hospital, most of the magnesium that's given is magnesium oxide, which has really poor absorption. It's like 11% Mm -hmm. versus mag sulfate, which is what I gave all the time because most people had subtherapeutic magnesium levels. And so without getting down a rabbit hole, I hundred percent agree that we need to be open-minded. Unfortunately, we get in this bucket of evidence-based medicine and we're sometimes so constrained by the evidence-based medicine that we don't want to deviate from that because there's we live in such a litigious environment where unfortunately people get sued even when they're doing the right things. So I can understand the hesitation to kind of experiment outside that kind of evidence-based medicine model Now, let's definitely touch on the role of mitochondrial dysfunction. My listeners are definitely savvy. They understand the role of the mitochondria, but you brought up Otto Warburg's work and we've had Sam Apple on and kind of dove into how cancer cells utilize fuel differently in the absence of oxygen than normal healthy cells. And so let's talk a little bit about how this impacts this mitochondrial dysfunction, how this can impact those special heart muscle cells, those myocytes, and how this can contribute to some of the beginning stages of issues related to inflammation, oxidative stress, et cetera. Yeah. So I, I initially started looking into this when someone just posed the question to me, why heart cancer is so rare? Because it is one of the rarest forms of cancer. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but it's extremely rare. And it's even more rare for it to be the primary site of a tumor. Most of the time when heart cancer does happen, it's because it's metastasized from somewhere else. But, uh, you know, it can be the primary tumor, but it's really, really rare. Like, uh, I think one example I gave in the book is that there's one guy up in Canada who's the closest thing we have to a cardiac oncologist, and he only gets referred like 12 cases a year. So it's just really, really rare. So I was just like, well, why is that? And I was familiar with, you know, Otto Warburg and the metabolic theory of cancer. And I was also familiar at this point with how the heart metabolism seems to be a bit special in that it prefers fatty acids and ketones more than other tissues in the body. And lots of organs do that, but there's lots of studies showing that in heart cells, heart muscle cells, that even in the presence of glucose, they choose fatty acids and ketones to burn them more predominantly. It's always burning some of all, you know, all the metabolites that it could be burning like carbs and and fats and ketones, but it prefers those even in the presence, which you know, in, in other tissues, like, you know, to be in a ketogenic state, we have to restrict the carbohydrate. We have to get rid of it completely to force the body to do that. 
but that doesn't seem to be so in the heart. And when I looked into why this is, the main theory is that, you know, at some point early in development, the heart cells kind of give up their ability to divide and become new cells. And they think that's because they're so metabolically active, these cells that are always contracting, using up a lot of ATP. So they give up this very metabolically demanding or energy demanding process of dividing and becoming a new cell. And so that's just interesting because that's why heart attacks are so you know, important or I guess detrimental is because you kill those cells, your body can't make new ones. And we have to try and repair the ones that were damaged. And so when I looked into that and we take this metabolic theory of cancer and we see that in this metabolic theory of cancer, it's when the cells, the mitochondria lose the ability to use oxygen because they become so damaged. And that's the organelle in our cells that allow the body to use oxygen to make energy. And if they become so damaged that you lose that ability, we go away from what's called oxidative phosphorylation, where you use oxygen to make energy and towards something called fermentation, which is where you can make energy without oxygen, but it's a really detrimental process. It makes more free radicals, which are, you know, I call them Looney Tunes, has Indian devil that runs around and, you know, causes damage and things like that, but they cause more damage that way, causing, you know, more mitochondria to be damaged. But this is why we see that cancer cells don't use oxygen. They love glucose because that's what you ferment, or at least the lactate from the glucose is what you ferment. And so the thing is, is that with heart cells being that they prefer fatty acids and ketones, especially ketones, ketones are a non-fermentable fuel source. And so if you have a cell that prefers those and is always going to choose those more, it's much harder for it to get into that fermentable state where it becomes cancer, right? Because it has this preference for burning those ketones. And so I detail like this whole series of events that can happen that can lead to what I call metabolic heart attacks, where we get tissue death when there's no blockage whatsoever. And so, you know, without going into all the details of that, what's in the book, but when that happens, it can cause tissue death by forcing a shift in metabolism forcing the heart to burn more carbohydrate, more glucose than it wants to. I mean, that has to do with our stress response and oxidative stress and things like that. But in that case, like if it was forced to burn more glucose and go into this fermentable state in a normal tissue in the body, that cell would choose to become cancerous because that's a short-term fix to this metabolic problem that's happening in the cell. So it's like the cell says, stay alive rather than die by rapidly dividing, being undifferentiated, anaerobic, not using oxygen cells, right? So in the heart where division is not possible, rapid division is not possible because it gave up its ability to divide cells, the tissues die. It has no choice. When it's forced to burn more glucose and do, go into this fermentation state, the tissue dies rather than rapidly divides. And that's how we can get tissue death in, the, in a certain situation that can cause that. And it's also why cancer of the heart is so rare because instead of become cancerous, the tissue dies. And so it's just this interesting thing that I kind of fleshed out. And hopefully you think I found the answer to or one reason why the cancer of the heart is so rare, but it all has to do with metabolism and it all has to do with oxidative stress and keeping those mitochondria healthy, which is very, very important, especially for the heart, which is one of the most mitochondrial dense tissues in the body, because it is always contracting. It's using a lot of ATP um, to do that. So that's the story there. No, I think it's really interesting. And like I said, when I was reading your book, it really encouraged me to think beyond what I was taught as a new nurse practitioner. You know, obviously I started as an ER nurse and the hospital I worked at in Baltimore, we did a high amount. I mean, at that time, I think we had the highest rate of cardiac caths in like the whole area. And we had a very talented interventional cardiologist. So we got very attuned to 
you know, the anatomy of the heart and, you know, the, the widow makers, what we call when the LAD gets blocked, that left anterior descending artery. But let's pivot a little bit and let's talk about Ansel Keys. I've had many, mm-hmm. many guests and we have talked a lot about Ansel Keys. And so his net impact on the trajectory of our health, I say our health as in a nation and a community has been very profound. And his cherry picking of data has also profoundly impacted our health. And so let's start there and and talk about how things have changed in terms of the focus on fearing fat as opposed to sugar and how that kind of changed the trajectory and the focus of not only the processed food industry, but a lot of the information that clinicians were giving to their patients. This is when, you know, my grandparents talked about this, that they went from enjoying butter and steak to all of a sudden being told that you need to have these hydrogenated oils, these bastardized plant oils, and really being fearful of any type of animal-based fat. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how familiar your listeners are with this whole backstory, but yes, Ansel Keys was a scientist in the, you know, who in the fifties gave America an answer to this rising epidemic that was heart disease. You know, President Eisenhower had a heart attack so famously when he was in the White House and people were fearing this disease and it was new, which I think people should note, it was new, you know? So thinking about that and thinking about what humans ate, you know, for years and years prior to this epidemic of heart disease, what was the difference, what changed? And you could say toxin exposure, you could say that there was a shift to more processed foods, you know, vegetable oils came on the scene, things like that. Stress, I mean, all the stress of war and things like that that happened in the previous, you know, few decades, that kind of stuff. But anyways, Ansel Keys gave the population, gave, you know, the world an answer, which was more saturated fat, more cholesterol, more heart disease. And he did this based on very poor quality cherry-picked research, I'd say, because it's epidemiology, which is the lowest form of research. There is because it can only show things are associated with each other. It can't show that one thing causes another. Um, And it's supposed to do this type of research to develop clinical trials after that. Okay, these things are associated. Let's test and see if one's causative. Unfortunately, that's very expensive to do, and it's not done a lot of the time. And so they take these associational studies and they make our nutrition guidelines based on these associational studies. And that's what happened with Ansel Keys is he originally, you know, published this research that just basically showed in these countries that he took data from the more saturated fat and cholesterol you ate, the more heart disease you had. However, he only picked the six countries that gave him the association he wanted to see, but there was data from 22 countries at the time. And so he kind of cherry picked the data to give him his result for whatever reason, whether he wanted to be famous or whether he had a lot of backing from certain industries, I don't know, but yeah, so by the time this theory was actually tested in clinical trials, which it was over the next you know, 10, 15 years or so, Ansel Keys doing some of the studies himself, by the time it was actually tested and they did all these studies where they replaced saturated fat with unsaturated fat in the form of margarine or vegetable oils and had terrible results with that, people had more heart disease and uh, more all-cause mortality with the more unsaturated fat they ate. But by the time this was all tested and flushed out, the theory had taken off. And there was money behind it. You know, everybody sees the cover of Time magazine with the frowny bacon face, you know, and yeah, the industries, other industries wanted to perpetuate this theory because it helps them. The sugar industry, the grain industry, the cereal industry, like all these, they were putting a lot of money behind this. And you see it today. You can even see with the funding in a lot of, you know, research funding behind a lot of research is, is these companies wanting this theory to keep going. And the same with the pharmaceutical companies. So after I think it was like 1984 or something like that, when they put together this committee to decide if cholesterol was good or bad for us. And they incorrectly, in my opinion, decided it was bad. And so after this committee 
you know, did this, they, they put together this other committee to educate doctors about how to assess and treat cholesterol. Right. And the pharmaceutical companies got wind of that. So they started sponsoring these committees and they basically sponsored them and encouraged them to lower the guideline of what cholesterol should be LDL, because the lower it is, the more drugs can be prescribed, the lower the recommendation is, the more drugs can be prescribed. So at first they were like, okay, cholesterol LDL should be 250. And they said, ah, 200. And it was 150 and it was 100. Now it should be lower than hundred. So to me, that tells me we have no idea what LDL cholesterol is supposed to be. It's just based on, you know, the idea that we have a drug to treat it. So we want to use that drug, make more money. If everything you, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of thing. And that's the idea cholesterol being the cause of heart disease is kind of based on, it's not really based on much science. Now there is some associational research that shows that higher cholesterol is associated with heart disease, but there's lots of different healthy user biases and things like that, that have problems with these studies. So, so yeah, it, it kind of took us for this turn. And it's only recently, I think that even in the research, we're starting to see, like there was that one article in 2020, they looked at all the evidence behind saturated fat and heart disease. And they said, Oh, saturated fat, the idea that saturated fat causes heart disease is way overblown. I think it was what the researchers said in that study. So it's only recently starting to come around, but it's been what, 60, 70 years that it's taken for that idea to come around, which is just shows you how slow the process of, of changing conventional wisdom is and research. So absolutely. I think there was a article that came out that said typical clinical medicine lags 20 years behind research. So it really does take time. And again, the cognitive dissonance, and it's not unique to medicine. It happens in probably most industries, but it's a particular interest now I think because on every single level, I just see patients getting more and more sick. Mm. And while we're talking about cholesterol, let's talk about the importance of cholesterol, because I think that when people understand that we want our cholesterol to be within a healthy range, because there's a lot of physiologic benefits to having healthy cholesterol levels and having healthy cell membranes and understanding that hormones are all a byproduct of cholesterol levels. So I think back to a lot of my patients are on statins and I started uh, decreasing their doses when their total cholesterol was getting close to a hundred. And we know that there is an uptick in morbidity and mortality if your cholesterol is not high enough. And I remember getting quite a bit of pushback from my colleagues about this, but if, if you really look at the research on cholesterol as a whole, we don't want it to be too low. Like that's not beneficial. So if you're on a statin and your cholesterol levels within a healthy range, that's fine. But if you're someone that's looking to learn more, let's talk a little bit about some of the benefits of cholesterol that maybe like the average person doesn't know. Well, you know, when we say cholesterol, we're saying like this general term, you know, cholesterol is the waxy substance that's carried in lipoproteins and lipoproteins are LDL and, and IDL and VLDL and HDL, all those different, you know, acronyms that we, we hear on a lipid panel. And so cholesterol is carried around in those because it can't be carried around in the blood itself because it's a fat and it's a, and it can't be, it can't exist in the water like substance that is blood. So yeah, like benefits. I mean, there's so many different things. So when we talk about LDL versus cholesterol itself, I mean, having cholesterol itself, that's what you make all your sex hormones with and all your hormones really. But it's one reason why we see that people who take statins tend to have sexual dysfunction. Maybe they don't have enough sex hormones. When we look at, uh, you talked about like the integrity of the cell membrane and communication between cells. And, you know, part of what I talk about as far as how important that is, as far as, because then a cell starts operating, like it's the only thing around it because it can't sense the other cells around it. And that's a bad situation 
And so we want the cells to all know that there's other cells around them. And so that's really, really important with cholesterol. Fat-soluble vitamins, you know, really, really important. I mean, people think, oh yeah, I get vitamin D from the sun. It's like you do, but you need sulfur and cholesterol and the raw materials so that when your sun, the sun hits your skin, you actually make vitamin D, right? It's really, really important. If you don't have enough, you're not going to make that. And so that's kind of like cholesterol and there's more of those, but then LDL itself. I mean, if we look at LDL molecules and how their ability to deliver energy. So if we're, which, you know, saturated fat and, and triglycerides, really, if we don't have enough LDL floating around the blood, we're not delivering energy, which is why statins can be cause fatigue and also muscle function, really important cholesterol. So that's why statins can cause muscle pain because if there's not enough cholesterol around or not enough delivery of it from the LDLs, then we can get muscle pain. And then also one that I was kind of shocked to find is that LDL molecules can actually help in the face of infection. They can neutralize bacteria and even play a role in the combating of viral infection. And so, and they do this by kind of binding and neutralizing the pathogen. And so that's why I think that when we see these associational studies, the people with higher LDL have lower rates of infection as they age, or at least uh, illness from infection. So yeah, this lots and tons and tons. I mean, there's even, you know, cholesterol molecules, because I talk about it in the book, how like, you know, how a statin inhibits the production of cholesterol very early on in the process of the making of cholesterol, which your body takes fatty acids and puts it through all these steps to make cholesterol. But it's not just, the point of that is not just to get to the end, which is to have cholesterol around. It's, there's also all these intermediate steps or intermediate molecules that are created that the body uses for things. One of them is the making of what are called selenoproteins. So it uses a certain molecule. I forget which one uh, you have to look at the book uh, to make selenoproteins, which are the precursors to antioxidants like glutathione, which is really, really important for keeping our um, mitochondria, like we were talking about healthy, uh, keeping oxidative stress low. And there's also another intermediate molecule that's used to make a molecule called dolichol. And you don't have to remember that name. You just have to remember that that's really important for insulin signaling. And if we don't have enough of that, because we're not making, we're telling our body not to make cholesterol by taking this statin drug, then that can create insulin resistance. And that's what we see in some of the studies I talk about in the book is that statins are seen to make insulin resistance more likely. There are more people who take statins tend to have insulin resistance than people who don't. And so that was one of my things I said in the hospital, kind of jokingly was like, they were trying to recommend statins. And I was like, I already have diabetes. I don't want type two diabetes, you know, which is, I guess, possible for me. I could develop insulin resistance and, and develop type two diabetes and be have double diabetes. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess the list goes on and on, but you know, this molecule of LDL that carries our cholesterol around our triglycerides is really, really important. Um, it does so many different functions and, you know, you're talking about, you know, different levels and I've found many studies, they're just associational studies. So they don't really prove causation, but they show that the levels of total cholesterol and LDL that are associated with the least all cause mortality and the least heart disease and least stroke and everything like that are total cholesterol of 200 to 250, which is above the recommendation currently and LDL at hundred to 150 which is again, above the recommendation currently. And again, those are just associations, but it's just, they're interesting to look at and think about. And then the numbers associated with the highest all-cause mortality and illness are lower than hundred, which is what is for LDL, which is what we're told. And I know that I know some cardiologists who say lower than 70, it's gotta be 70 or lower. And that is again, showing the, the highest all-cause mortality when it's that low. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? 
If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day. The indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air and in some circumstances, up to 100 times more polluted, according to the EPA. And did you know that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally? So what's the solution? I want to introduce you to a product by Air Doctor that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so that your lungs don't have to. This includes pollutants such as allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses that have the potential to go on and make us sick. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day, breathe-easy, money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorrow.com and use code CYNTHIA. You'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit which is an additional $84 in value. Look at the special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code Cynthia. I absolutely love my air filters. They're an integral component to ensuring that the air that my family breathes in our home is as safe as possible. It's really interesting because there's no cognitive dissonance on my end, but I do remember that we used to push statins to as high a degree as a patient could tolerate. And more often than not, a lot of the side effects of statins that patients would report 
sexual side effects, you know, insulin resistance, myalgias, which are a fancy way of saying muscle aches, arthralgias, joint pain were so common that we would find very unique ways of trying to administer statins. Sometimes it was every other day, twice a week. I used to say some is better than none. And so I very humbly, like, as I'm listening to this, is it any surprise that statins are contributing in many instances to worsening insulin resistance or people who have been insulin sensitive, who suddenly become insulin resistant. I know one of the studies you mentioned talked about a 30% increased risk of diabetes while taking uh, statins. And I do recall when that Lipitor study came out because understandably patients were upset and concerned and we would just say, we're going to monitor it. And I think it's really important to get this information out there that there's no medication without side effects and really thinking about the physiology of the body and the way that these drugs work so that you can make a fully informed decision with your doctor or your NP or whomever you're, you're having the conversation with. Now, let's talk a little bit about causes of myocardial infarct. So causes of heart attacks, you've touched on some of these, but I think it's particularly important because it's not just the big things. It's not just, you know, as you mentioned, it's not just the cholesterol piece. And more often than not, that's taken the focus away from what's really driving the escalating rates of metabolic disease and cardiovascular disease. So we touched on metabolic inflexibility and that's a given, but what are some of the other pieces that you put together through your research? I think it's really interesting, the net impact of stress I think that we collectively as human beings think of this as stress is stress. Everyone experiences stress. Well, our body's perception of the stress can be quite significant and profound. Yeah. And just because I thought of it now, I don't want to forget to say it. Our physiology is not created, evolved, whatever you want to say to handle what we're handling these days. You know, we are for many, many years, we had small communities where we knew everybody in the community, maybe hundred to 150 people. Sometimes people didn't even go 10 miles from where they were born in their entire life, right? And now in a relatively, you know, evolutionarily short amount of time, we have gone from that type of living to knowing what's going on all over the world by watching the news and just, and seeing everything that's going on, all the stressful things. We have thousands and thousands of friends. They may be just Facebook friends, but thousands of friends that we're just scrolling through and comparing our lives to, you know, there's all the different, not just psychosocial ones, but all the different stresses, like, you know, the wrong type of light can be very stressful, causing oxidative stress and increasing sympathetic response, which is a stress response, all the different toxins we're exposed to just, you know, thinking about the, the environment of like the sounds of a city and how, you know, those types of sounds have been shown, you know, research uh, has shown that the body has a stress response to those. Even if our brain overrides it, like, oh, it's just a taxi cab honking its horn. Our body's having a stress response to it. And so we just have to think about this idea that stress kills in with this context of what stress in, in modern day life actually is and how different it is from anything. Our physiology, like our, our evolved physiology is still that to respond to stress, you know, when stressful things happen. So like the example is like a zebra is grazing on the African plain, right? And then the cheetah comes out to try and eat it, right? And it has a stress response because before that it was in, you know, parasympathetic, it was very calm, it was eating, whatever. And then it has a stress response so it can get away from that threat. And if it successfully gets away, then that stress response shuts down and it goes back to, to normal again. And that's normal physiology. That's how we handle stresses. It's the ability to adapt to a stress and come back to normal. And unfortunately, in today's world, 
we're in the situation where there's constant things that are convincing us that we're in a threatening environment, even if we're not really in a, in a threatening environment, we're the only species in the world that can think your way into that stress response because we have these big brains, which just served us very, very well in so many ways. But also we have to think about how that brain perceives our modern environment and how it's creating this imbalance in our stress response. And then carrying that further, how does that affect specifically our cardiovascular system, but our health in general? And so when you look at this, and this is something that I went into more detail in the talk I did a few weeks ago on YouTube than I did in the book, even though I talk about it in the book as well. But when we think about, like you just kind of started off saying, you know, what are some of the causes of heart attacks? And I kind of described one already where it can be a forced shift in metabolism. And we should know that there's some things that can predispose us to that, like poor metabolic health and high oxidative stress, which is kind of inflammation and damage that happens in the body. But the triggering thing that happens when we get those heart attacks with no blockage that force this metabolism shift that cause tissue death is an acute stress in the context of already chronic stress. Um, and that sends signaling to the heart that tells it to shift its metabolism toward more glucose usage, which causes, you know, lactate and hydrogen ion production, which just causes edema and causes blood flow issues. And then we get hypoxic blood and we get tissue death. And that can happen whether there's atherosclerosis there or not. That's not what happened to me. I had a clot that formed. And so that's the other thing. That's the other way we could get a heart attack is, and probably the more common way, although I'm not sure the exact numbers, I don't think anybody is, but is that this clot that forms. And we've been taught that there's this idea that the stenosis of an artery or this narrowing of an artery, this quote unquote buildup of a cholesterol, even though that's not what it is, narrows the artery more and more and more and the narrower it gets, it cuts off blood flow and then oh, boom, we have a heart attack. But that doesn't make sense to me because there are examples of people who have like a 90 or 95% blockage of an artery, narrowing of an artery who run marathons, you know, and they do so just fine. And it's because the body builds collateral arteries around that stenosis. And I talk about research in the book that those collaterals can form within four days of a gradual stenosis. So that's pretty fast. But if we get an acute clot that forms instantaneously and it's big enough to block either an artery stenosed portion of the artery, or it's big enough that it blocks the whole artery right there, or it flows down to a smaller artery and blocks there, then that can be an acute situation where we have acute blood flow restriction to an area, myocardial infarction. And that's what happened to me. I had an acute clot form. And so then if we look at what makes up atherosclerosis, what makes up the narrowing of the artery, it's not cholesterol. Like I looked, I talked about two studies in the talk I gave a few weeks ago that took atherosclerosis and analyzed what it was. And it said, I think it said like 87 plus or minus 8% of that material was clotting material. It was, it was fibrotic material, fibrin, which is what happens when your body initiates a clot. It's the same thing it does when you cut your skin. It initiates a clot and the scab forms there. And so the same kind of thing happens on the lining of an artery is we get damage. And if it's too much damage and the body can't repair itself because it's insulin resistant, it's, it's poor metabolic health. It can't repair itself then the body has to do something or else it's going to start bleeding from the artery on the inside. So it forms a clot and it tries to heal it that way. And so these clots can, can form on top of each other. And that's how we get this stenosis, this narrowing of the artery. They can form over and over and over again on top of each other, or it could be a significant, you know, clotting mechanism that forms that it blocks the whole artery right then and there, depending on the situation. And so, yeah, they did find some like when they analyzed this atherosclerosis, they found some cholesterol molecules because when a clot forms, it just kind of sucks in whatever else is around. And LP little A, which people talk about a lot, 
it actually prevents clots from breaking down. So if your body's trying to initiate a clot, it wants LPE to lay there so it can prevent that clot from breaking down. And that's why we see other lipoproteins there because LP delay is a lipoprotein. So yeah, I mean, atherosclerosis is a clotting disease. So the natural question is what damages the lining of an artery to cause clotting? And that's not a simple answer. That's, there's many, many things that can do that. Toxin exposure, different toxins. But so oxidative stress in general, you know, which we can talk about things that create free radicals, but, you know, heavy metals, endotoxemia, all these different things that can cause oxidative stress and different toxin exposures, microplastics, which people talk a lot about BPA and things like that. Even artificial fragrances, different things, all these different toxins that we're exposed to every single day can contribute to our oxidative stress load that is then damaging the artery. And then the thing that, that breaks the camel's back is the insulin resistance because normal wear and tear in an artery is supposed to happen. And we have repair mechanisms that are very effective at doing that as long as the system's not overwhelmed. However, those repair mechanisms in the endothelial cells are dependent on proper insulin signaling. And if we have insulin resistance, type two diabetes, poor metabolic health, whatever you want to call it, then our body can't repair those things. And we get more likely to get clots forming on top of clots on top of clots on top of clots. And so other things, I mean, we, the big one we were kind of led in this conversation with was stress. I mean, hands down, if you look at the research and I talk about it in the, in the talk I gave a few weeks ago, they did, they looked at the effects on clotting of acute stress and they had all, they had this whole list of like, I don't know, like 12 different clotting factors and all but three of them increased significantly during acute stress. So your body is in this pro thrombotic state. And the reason being is because in acute stress, we think our body is being threatened, it's being attacked. And so if we get an injury, you know, this is evolutionarily the explanation, but we get an injury somewhere. It wants to be ready to clot and prevent bleeding out right from that injury. And however, we're having these psychological, uh, like the modern world is psychologically stressing us out, even though there's no, you know, physical harm that's happening to us. And so that's creating this increase in, in clotting. And that's why heart attacks are more common on stressful days of the year. And we see that in the research. Definitely. They're more, unfortunately, more, more common around holidays or sporting events where people are betting on everything and they got a lot of money on the line or Mondays when they're coming back out of the weekend to a stressful day of work, like heart attacks are more common on these days because of the clotting that's initiated during the stress. And so it, it really takes the, to me, it takes the whole prevention of, I think atherosclerosis and heart attacks can almost be seen as two totally different things. And one doesn't necessarily cause the other one is clotting. One is just repair, you know, like, you know, so, but it takes the, instead of focusing on this idea that cholesterol accumulates in the arteries and causes atherosclerosis and narrows the artery restricts blood flow, which is not really proven and says, okay, how do we manage our stress? Like, that's the big thing that I think we need to be talking about and stress can cause insulin resistance. You know, he puts you in an insulin resistant state. That's the way forward. I feel like with heart disease is, is this stress management piece, which is hard to do because it involves significant changes in lifestyle and, and getting rid of things you may not want to get rid of and, and things like that. So, but yeah, that's the, it's a big message in my book. No. And it's interesting. Something that really stood out for me and, and listeners know I have an aura ring and I love my aura ring. I like mm. data. And one thing you mentioned is that heart rate variability, which is something the aura can track is the best measure of stress response and declines with age. And so, yes, you don't expect your HRV at 50 to be what it would be at 20. But for me, it really gives me a sense of how well recovered I am. So I just did back-to-back travel. And even though I enjoy traveling, it is super stressful dealing with Ubers and airports and cities, you were saying about the city response. It's absolutely true because I live in a very quiet part of Virginia. 
and even the airports and navigating all of those things. My HRV was completely in the tank while I was traveling, even though I was sleeping. And then it took three days before my HRV bounced back into the fifties when I was at home. And of course my husband thinks I'm a gigantic nerd that I'm like, so focused on this stuff. I said, but it really is a reminder that you may perceive your stress levels are low when in fact they are not. Now I would be remiss if we didn't at least touch on fasting because you do talk about this in the book in terms of evolutionary adaptation and the changes that have occurred in the last, you know, 50 to a hundred years, what's your take on meal frequency and snacking as it impacts heart health? I know your answer, but I wanted to hear you say it. Yeah. So in the book, I have kind of these three themes that I keep coming back to, and that's metabolic health, oxidative stress, less inflammation, and balance in the autonomic nervous system, which is our stress response, you know, like dealing with our stress. And so every time I think about a therapy or a lifestyle or whatever that you could do, to improve your risk, or I guess, decrease your risk for heart disease is how does it match up with these three imbalances? Does it help with these three imbalances? And when we talk about fasting, the answer is absolutely yes. It does all three of these things. It helps you improve metabolic health because, you know, there were times evolutionarily that, you know, food wasn't around so much, especially during the winter. And so our bodies evolved almost for it to almost be beneficial to, to when we had to take breaks from eating as often and it used to like clean things out and to write your metabolism and to become, you know, use mechanisms or use, um, develop mechanisms for using ketones and things like that. And so, so yes, metabolic health wise, absolutely. It's also interesting that there's studies that I talk about in the book that show that when you fast, like long-term fast, that your cholesterol goes way up. And, you know, Dave Feldman would tell you that's because they're delivering energy. You know, you have to deliver more fatty acids and ketones and things like that, or just fatty acids to the cells. So LDL goes up, but the very idea that if saturated fat and eating more saturated fat and cholesterol causes heart disease is what causes heart disease. And, but the fact that you don't eat anything at all and your cholesterol goes up disproves that theory in my opinion. And so anyways, so there, there's that. And then as far as inflammation and oxidative stress, you know, when we're fasting, we start relying more on ketones which are an incredibly efficient fuel source that make very little or less oxidative stress, less waste products. Although I don't think there really are any waste products. We talk about the cell making mm -hmm. waste products and it brings energy, but I don't think there are really. Uh, it's all used for something beneficial. But yeah, so there's less of that going on. And this has especially been shown in muscle where if we're using fatty acids and ketones, we're making less oxidative stress. And so when we fast, we're pushing our body to do that, to mobilize fatty acid stores and use those for fuel. And then as far as balance in the autonomic nervous system, definitely research has been shown that fasting will do that to an extent. I think that there is a window of time because I talk about some studies in the book where, you know, fasting in the first three days, if you're doing a long fast, intermittent fasting, I think it's beneficial just generally, but if you're doing a longer fast, the first three days, it stimulates parasympathetic. But then after that, there's a window of time where it seems to stimulate sympathetic, where your body's almost freaking out a little bit. But then I think it comes back around after a while, but I don't know that we have the data to show that. I just know what I see in people who do longer term fast. That's kind of what they see. But so, yeah, I mean, in all three phases of what I think are the main drivers, the main imbalances that create heart disease, fasting, if whether it's intermittent or longer term fast seems to be beneficial in all three phases. That's fantastic. Well, I've so enjoyed this conversation. And obviously I could talk to you for hours. Please <laughs> let my listeners know how to purchase your book, how to connect with you on social media and on your website. Yeah. My website is resourceyourhealth.com. My books are on there. My blog is on there and I do like little health coaching kind of online consulting. So that's on there as well. My book is on Amazon. Uh, it's also on the publisher's website and 
and Barnes and Noble and things like that. People don't want to use Amazon. There's, there's people that don't want to. So there's that. And then on social media, I'm just Dr. Stephen Hussey, Dr. Stephen Hussey on Instagram and, and Facebook and Twitter. And people can reach out to me there and, and I'm happy to interact with them. Awesome. Thanks so much for your knowledge and for, you know, putting your, your story out there. I think it'll help inspire a lot of people. Thanks for having me on. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 